the ghost of radio. Welcome back to this Our Shared Podcast. You know what it's about, mid-century horror radio. Aren't we nearing mid-century 21st century? We are, if you want to stretch the case a little bit. But we are firmly focused on the 20th century. Remember that one? Remember that nondescript century? Nothing much happened except some good mid-century horror radio that we are still planning to enjoy, no matter how far away we roll on the old timeline. So, let's go to our cauldron, filled with episodes of mid-century horror radio. Pull one out at random. All right. What we are listening to this week is Change of Address from The Mysterious Traveler. The episode is Change of Address from the series The Mysterious Traveler. You know what to do is you go to the internet, you open that thing up, and you go to some non-tracking browser and type in relicradio.com where you can find everything on one of their two podcasts, The Horror or Strange Tales. Or you go to archive.org, the internet archive. They have everything. Fastest path is to type in Mysterious Traveler Radio single episodes in some non-tracking search engine, and it will take you directly to the internet archive. Or anywhere else. There are many other places, including a lot of YouTube channels, where you can listen to this episode. Do any of these places offer what we offer? Oh, hells no, they don't. You're not going to get any discussion. You're not going to get any analysis, comparison. You're on your own so far as those ghouls are concerned, but not with me. So we're going to listen in our own ways and times, then we'll come back here, hit some clips, make some sense, discuss, learn, and joy. That's the full package. So off you go. See you soon. All right, we are all back from listening to Change of Address from The Mysterious Traveler. And what did you make of it? I will say, I will just note that sometimes your ghost is inquired after about whether I really go back to listen to the episode. Of course I do. Not only because I have to ghost the audio, but to get my head back around it. Who knows how many eons ago, eons before the 20th century, I made up this list in our cauldron. So I go back, I listen one full time just to get back into it. Then I listen again to cut the audio. And then I come back to you. Ah, change of address. Ah, boy. Hey, we are dangerously close to a very unknown and foreign territory for us, which is here in the middle of season six. Do I sense a little fatigue? I think I do. A little bit tired of the failed marriage story. Yeah, we're not surprised. We've talked about how, for all of these programs, marriage is nine times out of ten a horrible, horrible thing because men and women simply cannot treat each other with love and respect. It's not possible. They either sexually desire each other or they hate each other, and that is it. <laughs> uh, how we got there is a story we keep 
going back to. We'll reserve a lot of that for another time. But oh, this is the story of the failed marriage from the man's point of view, where he is henpecked, as always, and decides he will kill his wife. When it's from the woman's point of view, uh, she is either bored or bullied, you know, bored or beaten, frankly. And I would say most of the time, these stories where it's the woman don't come off with this kind of, you know, assumed control, like, well, I guess I'll just kill my wife. The woman has to suffer and be afraid and be scared and work herself up to it. Oh, this is a well-trodden path. And it tests our resolve to cling on to our premise that you can repeat a story. I mean, what story have you heard that is new? There's nothing new under the sun. You can't write a new story. So we're going to have reruns, and it's all about how well you do it. And what do we ask of a mid-century horror radio program, whether the horror is supernatural or human? That it spook us out. That it get us thinking about life in a different way. That it unsettles all of our assumptions about how the world works. Not getting any of that here. You get the feeling even the writer was tired of it. Even the writer was done at this point. This had served all it could serve. And this is only like, what, 1942? (laughs) What was the year of this episode? It's in the 40s. Well, let's get into it and see if we can't find some enjoyment to be wrung out of it. All of the flavor is gone, but we're going to keep chewing and we will start with our Mysterious Traveler intro. The Mutual Broadcasting System presents The Mysterious Traveler. Written, produced, and directed by Robert A. Arthur and David Cogan, and starring two of radio's foremost actors, Jan Miner and Wendell Holmes, in Chains of Address. This is the mysterious traveler inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and the terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, that it will thrill you a little and chill you a little. So settle back, get a good grip on your nerves, and be comfortable, if you can, as we meet a gentleman who's just found exactly the house he's been looking for. I call his story, Change of Address. Have you ever seen a house that made you say automatically, that house was just made for a murder? Of course not, because one can't think of a less authentic premise (laughs) to hang a plot on. I mean, it's like... Of course you have. Hey. But until now, you've never wanted to own such a house. I said no. But now your name is Andrew Holland. You're in your 40s, and all your life you've been ultra-respectable. Okay, if you're going to force me into being someone else, then just admit that this is not a widely held piece of 
common knowledge or received wisdom. This is all inside Andrew. All right, we get into his story with this intro scene that writes itself at this point. And they even have to, of course, of course, a thing about names. They have to give the wife a terrible name, what they feel is a terrible name, Jocasta. I can't tell what import the name is supposed to have. Of course, it is the name from Greek mythology of the mother of Oedipus, who connives with her husband to kill her newborn son, Oedipus. She thinks that's happened when her husband is killed by their unknown to them grown son. She marries him. So uh, it's not a good character. She's not a great person. But nothing in this story really applies to that. She kills herself when she finds out you know, what has happened. So I don't know why they chose it, except perhaps to mock her. Like, oh, she has this name of a queen of mythology who was truly diabolical, yet she was just a nag. <laughs> and you know that once a radio show establishes a name, oh, Lord above, they have to use it over and over. And they, they want you to note that Andrew says her name because he hates it, because he hates her. Yeah. Oh, I think by the end of this little scene, we've got it. But your story really starts many weeks before that, and many thousand miles away, in another house, your ugly, uncomfortable home in Philadelphia. Andrew. Yes, Jocasta? That's your fourth cocktail. It's only the third, and they're very mild. Two cocktails before dinner, enough for a man of your age. We must think of your health. I'm only 46. I really don't believe I have one foot in the grave yet. Forty-seven. And there's no use taking chances. I'm sure Dr. Stevens would back me up. Dr. Stevens be hanged. If another cocktail is taking a chance, I'll take it. All my life I've lived safely and soberly. I feel as if I'd spent 47 years in a prison cell. It's been about as exciting. There. Andrew. You're in a very strange mood. Worried about you. That's you need a, a tonic. Oh, yes, I do, Jocasta. I do need a tonic. An exciting one. Oh, a vacation. Perhaps a little change of scene. We must consult Dr. Stevens. By all means, let's consult Dr. Stevens. He's had a pill ready for every emergency in the last quarter of a century. Let's see what he prescribes now. You must go see him tomorrow, Andrew. I will call and make the appointment. Now, please, go dress for dinner. <laughs> You go up to your room, Andrew. What's the use of rebelling? You're caught in a rut, like so many men are caught, and there's no getting out of it. Say what? You stand staring at yourself in the mirror. For once. 47, but well-preserved, uh -huh. good-looking still, mm. still capable of playing a man's part in the world, if you had the chance. What did all that mean? Much as I'm excited to have a man look at himself in the mirror, is this the first time in six seasons that a man has ever looked at himself? <laughs> okay, we just did Man in the Mirror, but that was very different. <laughs> and in fact, that was all about not looking at himself in the mirror. Here you have a man, frankly, assessing how attractive he is. Boy, that's a, a refreshing shift from it always being women. From the curse of the mantle to the devil's boutique, what have we learned about women's vanity? 
Okay, but all this... It's just hard to believe the writer was this on board with, you know, the idea of male oppression. Oh, so many, many, many men are just dominated by their wives. You know, women have all the power in this world. If only he could be a real man who had control over women and oppressed women. Mm-mm, mm-mm, playing a man's role. Well, there is someone who doesn't think he is doing that, and that is Julie, the surprisingly likable French lady's maid who he catches stealing, Jocasta's jewelry. And he says, girl, I don't care what you do, take it. And uh, they end up hooking up. Well, not, not entirely. That never does get to happen, does it? They meet up later because... At this point, does he really realize that he wants to leave Jocasta for Julie, or does he just want someone to talk to? Just needs a girlfriend to chat with. Why did you want to see me? I wanted to ask you what you meant. But why? By what? saying that you were you were sorry for me? You really don't know. Well, maybe I can guess, but but tell me. You're a rather attractive man, Miss Holland. Well, thank you. I mean it. Of course, you're as stuffy as an old horsehair sofa. Thank you again. Well, you are, you know. Yes, I, I, I suppose I am. In fact, just recently, I've become unpleasantly aware that I am. Well, you're a rather attractive man married to that woman unable to call a breath of your own, so I'm sorry for you. I can't help wondering how you'd have turned out if you'd married someone different. I can't help wondering myself. Well, then there's hope for you yet. Listen to that. To Mr. Andrew Holland, he is hoping. Right. But, Julie, here's hoping what? He is hoping you get a little fun out of life. Everybody's entitled to some fun before they die. Of course. Look at me. Why? I'm a thief, sure. Sometimes I started out straight. Got married, my husband turned out to be a thief, and he taught me to be one. We made a good team, until he got killed. I see. And then I tried going straight, and when I took the job with your wife, I, I really meant to reform, but she drove me to it. I couldn't stand. I wanted to steal her jewels just to, to show her. But it doesn't sound sensible. But it does. I know exactly how you feel. You do? Yes. Yes, I do. Why, I think I hate Jocasta. Yes, when I think how she's ruled me all these years, I hate her. Well, listen to brother Mr. Holland talk. Oh, don't, don't call me Mr. Holland. Call me Andrew. All right. Andrew, you and I will have to see more of each other. We seem to have something in common. She is just very likable. She doesn't seem like the usual character, which is the gold digger who just wants the rich man to leave his wife because he's rich. She wants his money. She is not in love with him, but, you know, her her pity <laughs> is capable of turning to something different. And they have a vibe, and it's all really nice. I wish. How I wish this could have been a different story. You know, why doesn't he just divorce his wife? Why didn't any of the people we've heard in all these 17 billion episodes coming out of the cauldron just get a freaking divorce? 
divorce was still very hard to get. Even, I, I guess, for a man in the 20th century, that's not really true. A man could get a divorce. A man definitely could. A woman could not. And many women would not because if they actually were divorced, they lost custody of their children instantly. And there was no such thing as spousal support. Um, Andrew could have divorced his wife. He's a man. He's a rich man. He could have done it. He would have had to come up with a reason. You had to have a reason. You couldn't just say irreconcilable differences. You know, you had to have some reason. And so he could have just said, oh, I had an affair. And then that would have done it, even if he hadn't had one. But he doesn't want to do it because I'm sure there was not really anything like a prenup as we know it, but uh, I think Jocasta could definitely have fought to get a lion's share of his income. And that's what's always behind these things. Oh, you know, from I'll Die Laughing onward, well, we could get a divorce, but then you'd be poor. And why would I want to stay with you if you're poor? (laughs) So it's really a false dilemma. How I wish he had just sucked it up and divorced Jocasta properly and just started that new life with Julie. She would have swung. She would have taught him how to be a jewel thief. Her husband taught her. (laughs) That would have been kind of nice. Instead, he finagles that he will uh, get the doctor to say he needs to go on a long vacation and he will just leave the house and disappear forever. Unfortunately, Jocasta finagles that she's going to go with him to watch him (laughs) during that, that break. And it's as they're driving out to California that he realizes he's just going to kill her. There, Andrew, you said it. It's out. Subconsciously, you've wanted your cast dead for years. Now you realize it. And realize that to be free of her, you'll have to take matters into your own hands. The idea doesn't shock you in the least. The only question is, how? You don't know how, but you're determined to find a way. You arrange with Julie to go to San Francisco and wait to hear from you. Then you and Jocasta start out by car. You drive across the country, wondering every hour how you can kill Jocasta and get away with it. You reach California. You're desperate. Your hatred for Jocasta is almost too much to conceal. Then you find it. Mr. Smalley, the real estate agent from the tiny seacoast town of Port Oro, shows it to you. The house. The house that was made for murder. There it is, folks. There it is. The house I was telling you about. Villa Vista. Isolated. An ocean view. Beach of your own. Quiet. Seclusion. Sea air. Just the thing the doctor ordered. Well, it doesn't look too bad at that. Does it, Jocasta? Are you out of your mind, Andrew? That house is the last place in the world I would live in. Oh, come now, Jocasta. It needs painting, fixing up. Otherwise, it wouldn't be available these days, would it, Mr. Smalley? Certainly not, Mr. Hollins. There's a housing shortage these days. And inside, Mrs. Hollins, it's very snug and modern. Really, it is. Besides, my dear, look at the ocean, the, uh, the beach. The ocean is cold and gray. I always thought the Pacific was blue. The beach is stony and dirty. I see nothing whatever to attract me to this, this habitation. Well, we mustn't be hasty, darling. At least, uh, 
Let us see the inside. And so the little real estate agent shows you through the house, Andrew. First, the cellar. See, folks, you have a real cellar and a real furnace. Anytime it gets a little chilly, just light up a fire, and there you are, snug and warm. <laughs> cellar has dirt floor. Damp, too. Very unhealthy. Then the first floor, and finally the second floor. Then Mr. Swally waits for your decision. My answer is no, Andrew. Positively no. Now, this house is not made to be lived in. Why, it's only fit for a... for a murder. You look at her, startled, Andrew. Has she guessed your thought? It is an ideal house for murder. Her murder. But no, she's merely using a figure of speech. You relax. Oh, really, my dear, you're being too harsh. I find the atmosphere here very peaceful, and Dr. Stevens did say a few months of peace and quiet would do wonders for me. Yes, he did. And a what? little paint and polish will make this house really quite livable. Will the owner fix it up, Mr. Smalling? I'm afraid not, Mr. Holland. Afraid not. Name's Wilson. Lives in Seattle. Won't spend a cent on the place. Has unhappy memories for him. Indeed. In what way? Retired. Came down here to live. His wife left him. Walked out. Went back to her folks in Texas. Well, shall we draw up a lease? Oh, we are reeling from a triple threat here of three established MCHR memes. Housing shortage. Deserted old house on the cliff side above the ocean. And realtor. <laughs> what would mid-century horror do without the realtor? We've talked about him before, man. He's got to be there to convince a couple to take a murder house. I mean, this is not the only time. Maybe some houses really are made for murder because we've had many houses that had to be, uh, have a heavy sell, hard sell from the realtor. And then we've had two amazing, amazing episodes. First, the house in Cypress Canyon from Suspense, and then the house that time forgot from Murder at Midnight, where a realtor tried, tried, tried to understand what was going wrong. Oh, God, those were good episodes. But okay, uh, Abandoned Cliffside, Danger, Murder House, Realtor, Housing Shortage. This is actually from 1952, so a little later than I had thought. One thing that is going to come out of left field here is that throughout the story, from this point forward, I kept getting mighty callbacks to an episode of, not The Simpsons, Columbo, an episode called Negative Reaction, where Dick Van Dyke, beloved alleged comic actor, played a murderer, a man who murdered his wife. And he lures her out to an abandoned house on the pretense that he wants them to rent it and it could be a vacation house for them. And she hates it exactly the way Jocasta hates it here. It's dirty. It's awful. Uh, in the Columbo story, her name is Frances. And I just kept getting real call aheads, I guess, because the Columbo episode, of course, came later in the 1970s. But it's a tremendous episode of Columbo, and thinking about it, hearing the weird and uncanny echoes of that story in this one actually raised the level of this story for me. Once we're done here, go watch. You can find it online. Go to the Columbophile 
website, you'll get a rundown of the episode, and I think you can watch it anywhere. Negative reaction. That is on my mind in the scene that passed. The scene that's coming up reminds me of not just an Alfred Hitchcock episode, but again, 101 Dalmatians of episodes where a man digs a grave in the cellar for his wife. The only time this is acceptable is in Murder Castle, season one. Been there, dug that. Don't get to do it again. How many? Okay. All right. It was a real meme. Dig in that hole in the basement. The cellar. Sorry, you have to call it the cellar for your wife. And it always goes wrong. The moment we hear this, we know he's not going to get away with it. So you go down to the cellar, Andrew, and start a fire. Then you look around. It comes to you. Complete the whole plan. It's as if the house itself suggested the idea to you. You find a rusty pickaxe in the corner. You start digging a hole behind the furnace. Andrew? Andrew, what in the world are you doing? Just digging a hole, my dear, to drain off the dampness. <laughs> It'll take more than that. That cellar needs a cement floor. Indeed it does. Someday it shall have one. I promise you that. It is killing me that the guy playing Andrew sounds so much like John, the hero of I'll Die Laughing, that episode we listened to, I think, in season two, one or two. It is actually our host, the mysterious traveler, a.k.a. Maurice Tarplin, who is playing Andrew here. He often played the, the male lead. No, not the female lead. That would have been interesting. No, the male lead. He sounds so much like the guy. It couldn't have been him, right? On the sealed book. There's so many tangled webs and interconnections, but we admired him and we'll always think of him in that role. So it bugs us to hear him going down the wrong path here. In the murder scene, which we will hear next, I like to believe when I've got a good Columbo episode in my head and the guy sounds like John from I'll Die Laughing, that this scene has a bit of crazy tension in it. It is the first time they kind of speak honestly to each other and you sense like real engagement between the two of them. It makes you think that if Andrew wasn't such a dink and he had ever treated his wife like a human being, maybe she would have been an interesting partner. Well, too late for that. Serves him right. Andrew, what in the world is wrong with you? Why, you've been nervous as a cat lately. Oh, nonsense, my dear. I'm fine. You are not, and it's this house made your nerves worse, and we're leaving it very soon. I'm afraid we can't. We have a six-month lease. And I say we will leave. I've started the machinery in motion. What do you mean, machinery? I've made a discovery, Andrew. A significant discovery. What discovery? I shan't tell you. You just poo-poo it. The way all you men are. Nevertheless, we will shortly be leaving this house, both of us. But I don't wish to leave. I like it here. No, that may be. I say we will leave. I will see to it. As soon as I... Oh, telephone. I'll answer it. Hello. Uh, this is Mr. Smalley. Is Mr. Hollins there? Yes. 
He's here? For you. That real estate agent. Hello, Mr. Smalley. What is it? News for you, Mr. Holland. Good news. Mr. Wilson just phoned he'd sell for cash. I see. I'm very happy to hear it. Two days ago, he said no, but he changed his mind. Seems he's in a little legal difficulty and needs cash for a lawyer. Oh, that's too bad, but it's an ill wind and all that. <laughs> exactly, Mr. Hollins, exactly. Well, I'll drop in tomorrow and settle the details. Goodbye, Mr. Smalley. What was all that about? There's nothing important. Jocasta, I have something to say to you. And I have something to say to you. Now, this house has been very bad for you, so inside of 48 hours, I am sure we will be leaving it, both of us. I just want you to get used to the idea. On the contrary, we're staying here, both of us, for a long time to come. In fact, I venture to say that you will be here permanently. <laughs> Nonsense, Andrew. Forty-eight hours, at the most. You're wrong, Jocasta. Andrew, what in the world are you... <laughs> <laughs> All right, we roll through to the ending now that we all knew was coming. Here's our chance to live up to our premise and say, yeah, it's going to be discovered. The body's going to be discovered. Okay, yes. How and what will make it interesting? What will make the hair stand up on our necks? What will spook us out about it? We are left hanging with that question because the answer is nothing. They make no attempt, just none, to deliver on any kind of tension in this really, not really. You know, they spend a long time being sexist. Oh, yeah. We couldn't believe it when a woman said she had an idea. Yeah, we all laughed. But then, you know what? A woman had an idea so crazy. Well, she's probably out shopping, so we can't congratulate her right now. I think the only thing that works here is, of course, Julie, who is wonderful as always. And I guess kind of when Andrew goes back and hangs up the phone, though I'm not sold on that last line. Somebody thought it was very dramatic, but somebody was wrong. You go back to the house, Andrew. You're filled with an enormous satisfaction. You're free. There's a new life ahead for you. For you and Julie. You call her on the phone in San Francisco. Andrew! It's so good to hear from you. I've waited so long. Yes, I know, darling, but it's all right now. Jocasta's left me, walked out on me, gone back to Philadelphia. Oh, that's wonderful. So we'll be together soon, very soon. I'll count the days, Andrew. She spoke of a divorce. It, it won't take long, and then we'll... Oh, excuse me. Someone's at the door. Hold on a minute, Julie, will you? Yes? Mr. Holland? Yes, I'm Mr. Holland. Well, I'm Sheriff Bigby. Ms. Holland's in? Why, uh, why no, she, she isn't. Mind if I come in? Why, no. Of course not. Thanks. Hey, uh, when, when will Ms. Holland be back? I, uh, couldn't say. Well, don't matter. I just thought I'd tell her her uh, hunch was dead right. Her hunch? What are you talking about? I'm talking about, uh, Mr. Wilson. Owns this place. And, uh... How he killed his wife. Wilson killed his wife? That's right. Nobody guessed. Till Ms. Hollins came along, put us on the track. We sure thought she was a little off a rocker, Mr. Hollins. Begging your pardon. 
when she uh, came to my office insisting there was something wrong with the atmosphere of this house, and she was sure it was because Wilson was a murderer. She she said that? She sure did. Well, everybody in town thought Miss Wilson up and left, Mr. Wilson, but uh, your wife, she wanted to write to Mrs. Wilson, uh, looking for an excuse to break the lease, she said, and uh, nobody had Miss Wilson's address. I don't understand. Well, it's like this. Even the post office didn't have a change of address for Mrs. Wilson. But... But what of it? Well, your wife said any woman who left her husband would put in a change of address so she could get her mail. Instead, it's all been going to Mr. Wilson in Seattle. Well, what is that? Well, now, your wife claimed this proved Mrs. Wilson was dead. Murdered. But, George, she was right. Wilson killed his wife. He sure did. We phoned Seattle, asked the police to question him. He thought uh, they knew the story and broke down and confessed. He's in jail now. Real smart work on your wife's part. Well, a couple of my boys will be along any minute to uh, dig up the body. What? <clears throat> Wilson said the minute he set eyes on the house, he felt it was a good place to commit a murder. So he killed his wife and buried her real deep behind the furnace. Behind the furnace? That's right. Told everybody she ran off. What is it, Mr. Hollins? Where are you going? I... I left the phone off the hook. Julie? Yes, Arthur, what is it? What's wrong? I... I just want to say goodbye, Julie. Jocasta is coming back. There must have been some better line he could have said. I just wanted to say goodbye, Julie. And then call back to her feeling sorry for him. Something like... I feel sorry for myself now, or now I feel sorry for you. Something, something would have worked there. We get into our outro from the man who now morphs from Andrew back into the mysterious traveler. He is very mysterious. And his little spiel reminds us of how many houses, how many houses have been described as provoking murder. Remember House of Doom? How we came around midway through that great episode of thinking, like, why are we blaming the house? Somebody is cursing this poor house to constantly be the site of murders. Quit blaming the house. Especially quit blaming the house here, because that's an attempt to make this story supernatural, when it so clearly is not. (laughs) Let's think of the house as we hear this outro, and let's stand by it. This is the mysterious traveler again. Poor Andrew. Even in death, Jocasta had him under her thumb. Yes, they both left the house inside 48 hours, just as she had sworn. That's the trouble with a house just built for a murder. Too many people may have the same idea. So, if you're ever tempted to dig a grave in your cellar, make sure no one else had the idea first, or you may get into trouble. In fact, it might be better if you just forget the whole thing and... Oh, you have to get off here. I'm sorry. I'm sure we'll meet again. I take this same train every week at this same time. You have just heard The Mysterious Traveler. 
Now you can enjoy other tense and exciting stories of the mysterious traveler in the current Mysterious Traveler magazine. In our cast were Jan Miner, Wendell Holmes, and Owen Jordan, with the title role played by Maurice Tarplin. Music is under the direction of Emerson Buckley and was composed by Richard DuPage. All characters in this story were fictitious. The story itself was dramatized from the pages of the Mysterious Traveler magazine. Russ Dunbar speaking. This program came from New York. Off it goes, off he goes. That's the end of the Mysterious Traveler's outro. We get a little extra push for the news, a little upsell at the end. If you want your news delivered by men, well, you are in luck. Every day, the news is different. And every day, Mutual presents veteran reporters with the latest headlines. Weeknights, hear Gabriel Heater, Bill Henry, and Frank Edwards. Saturday and Sunday evenings, don't miss famed expert Cecil Brown and the news. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Nice to hear the long outro for Mysterious Traveler. That was a pretty rare occurrence. It's good. Good theme song. Uh, just like last week where we marveled at the how good the full theme song for Macabre was. Good stuff here at the very end from Mysterious Traveler. Too bad it was at the very end. But those are the chances we constantly take. Listening as we do to this particular genre. We weren't thrilled. <laughs> it didn't thrill us a little or chill us a little to listen to The Mysterious Traveler tonight, but our faith is undimmed, right? We know that around the corner is going to be something good out of that cauldron, and we are going to have our faith in mid-century horror radio renewed, whether we are in Colorado Springs, Sandusky, Reno, or London, wherever we gather. There we are, ready to hear something that makes life a little more worthwhile for spooking us out, making us feel and think differently about received truths, making us question a little bit. We don't have to go down to a cellar, to a roughly dug rectangular depression in a cellar, to feel like maybe we're in a little bit of danger when we listen to a good episode of this stuff. So hang in there for next week is all I can say to you. Along with, as always, as you go your way this week, be safe, be happy, and I'll see you soon. Inside of 48 hours, I am sure we will be leaving it, both of us. I just want you to get used to the idea. On the contrary, we're staying here, both of us, for a long time to come.